This is the Thank You 72 podcast brought to you by the Wisconsin Alumni Association. This podcast salutes outstanding Badgers from Wisconsin's 72 counties. It's also our way of saying thank you to the people of this state for sending their best and brightest to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Here's your host, Todd Pritchard. For almost two decades, Outagamie County native and UW alum Greta Van Susteren dominated the cable news airwaves. She anchored on the record with Greta Van Susteren on the Fox News Channel. Welcome on Greta Van Susteren tonight. Why did former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright say President Bush made a big mistake? 25 years ago, a tragic double murder and the ensuing trial of the century against O.J. Simpson dramatically changed the course of Van Susteren's life. In today's podcast, Greta shares her biggest regret when she left Fox News, the new project she's working on now, and much more. Van Susteren was born in Appleton on June 11, 1954. She graduated from UW-Madison in 1976 and Georgetown Law in 1979. I spoke to Greta by phone from Washington, D.C. She began by talking about her life growing up in Appleton. What's interesting mostly is how it relates to the economy. When I grew up, one of my friend's fathers owned the grocery store, another one owned the office supply, another one owned the bank, another was captain of the police force. My father was a judge. And so it was some interesting... It was at a time when we didn't have Staples or Giant or Safeway or these big chains. And, it, you know, I liked it because the community really cared about the community because that's where the whole economy was. You know, I, I suspect it's changed. or I know it's changed because now you've got a bunch of chains in there. So it has lost a lot of its small town nature. But I think that's true all across America. So tell me about your father a little bit, Urban. He was a judge, um, campaign strategist for Senator Joe McCarthy, and obviously you were just a, a little child during the McCarthy era. But that... well, actually, he Joe McCarthy um, died when I was three. I don't yes. know Joe McCarthy. Right, and right. You were my so father, young. My father was his campaign manager in 1946 when I think he beat one of the LaFollettes in the primary, McCarthy. Um, but then once elected to the Senate, my father elected not to go to Washington with McCarthy, but decided to stay in Appleton, which was a pretty smart decision. Yeah. Did, did that have much of an impact on you growing up? Not really, probably, huh? N- not much because I was only three. So I didn't, you know, not much. Um, when I, and interesting, though, when I came out to Washington, D.C., the first summer I spent with Joe McCarthy's widow uh, living at her house. I was only going to spend one night. And I ended up spending the whole summer. And um, she was significantly younger than McCarthy. I think she was about 26 when she married him and probably not not so much older when he died. So she was in her early 50s. And I got to know her. Uh, She died in 1979, right after I graduated law school. What was she like? She was an artist and very exciting. uh, She was an attractive woman. She knew everybody in Washington, which made her even more exciting to me. She knew Edward Bennett Williams, a very famous lawyer who had been Joe McCarthy's lawyer way back when. And she knew senators and congressmen. And she's, you know, it was it was exciting to know Jeannie McCarthy Manetti. So that's when what time of life was that for you? Uh, You were in when you were in Washington. After my um, junior year of college, I came out to Washington to be an intern for Senator Gaylord Nelson, Democratic senator from uh, from Wisconsin. And he was, I think he was chairman of the Senate Small Business, Senate Select Committee on Small Business. And so I was an intern in his office. And that's when I spent the summer living with her 
um, you know, it's a typical Washington D.C. intern experience. It's just nothing but exciting. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, of I course, and funny, the funny thing is that this is the good thing is that they, at the time, it's very popular. Softball is very popular in D.C. Co-ed softball, at least it was then. And I played on Senator um, Gaylord Nelson's team. And as a girl slash woman, I could hit. And so the following summer, um, they never offered internships uh, for a second time because they wanted to give other people an opportunity. But you had to have a certain number of women on the field. So the following summer, they offered me another internship because I could hit, not because I was necessarily such a great intern. I declined it and did something else, but uh, I always called my baseball scholarship. So what made you decide to come to the University of Wisconsin? It was the only place to go. When I grew up, you just you went you went to two places. I went to a Catholic high school. You either went to Marquette or Wisconsin. Those were your two choices. Nobody ever went out of state or thought of going out of state. And Madison was probably just about one of the most exciting places on earth. And especially this was on the you know the tail end of the anti-war demonstration. And uh, was you know Madison was just like I said one of the most exciting places in the world. Most interesting place where diverse discussion, debate, people from all over. I remember my first New York Times uh, newspaper in the Memorial Union. I'd never seen that in Appleton. My mother was a New Yorker and she oftentimes talked about the New York Times and I actually think she got it on Sundays but it was it was not like it is now. And uh, Madison had people from all over the world. It was a microcosm of the whole world. You'd go there, you'd meet people from all different co- you know countries all over the world studying all sorts of different topics. Plus, you'd meet people even from around Wisconsin that you, that you didn't know. I've met people whose Parents were doctors and lawyers, but I also met people whose parents worked in, you know, Point Brewery or uh, other, you know, paper mills. It was just uh, just about the greatest place to be. What's your favorite memory of UW-Madison? My first night there, I went to the Memorial Union. And when I started college, 18 was the drinking age. It had just recently switched. There's always 18, I think, for beer. But I went out on the Memorial Union. It was a beautiful, beautiful August night. It was absolutely spectacular. Uh, on the lake and the, and I got a, a bottle I sat down had a bottle of beer and they put up a big screen and played some black and white Charlie Chaplin movies and someone played a player played a piano to it they were uh, they were silent movies and it was just about one of the most beautiful nights in my whole life so what did you major in here major in economics uh, I bounced around and I bounced around primarily see what fit my schedule mostly um, you know, I was a typical student in that I didn't come in with any sort of mission, although I wanted to go to law school, so it didn't matter what you majored in. Uh, but I chose my courses by how they fit my schedule. I didn't want to get up too early in the morning like many students. I was. Um, I also took them to meet certain things that I wanted to do. For instance, um, I, I went on the world's best trip ever the summer of 1973 with the geology department at Wisconsin. I went to the Yukon Territory, and uh, we climbed mountains and glaciers and studied um, studied stones and rocks and everything else. And I, was, and I got six credits. It was unbelievable. It was, I learned more in those six weeks or whatever it was than any other time, I think, in my whole academic career. Um, so naturally, I wanted to be a geology major. But then I came back. And a lot of my friends who had gone on this spectacular geology expedition were now becoming uh, anthropology majors because they wanted to go to Nepal because there was another trip. I think with a, the first one was Professor Loudon. I think the second was Professor Hitchcock. I'm sure they're long gone now um, to Nepal. So they all switched to become anthropology majors. 
And I was likewise going to do that, although I found anthropology exceedingly difficult, 101. And uh, it was clear that I was never going to have a career in it, but I was going to switch majors so I'd go on this trip. But instead, um, I I ended up going to uh, Washington to be an intern, which is in our Gaylord Nelson, as I noted. Uh, but, you know, I, you know, there were just so many phenomenal experiences you could have in Madison. So, or or through their pro or through their long arm of doing other things like Nepal or the Yukon Territory. But I started. I should say I ended up majoring in economics, and it was somewhat of self defense because the one thing that I always thought academically is that, and I and I've taught at Georgetown Law School as an adjunct professor for at least a dozen years, and it confirmed what my thought was then, is that you write a paper in history or English. And it re- the grade really is subjective. And I, I know this from my own experience teaching. You know, what's the difference between an A and an A minus or a B plus? I mean, it's really hard to tell on a written paper. It's very subjective. And I wanted to go to law school, so I wanted to control my destiny, control my grades. So I switched to something, to, an, to a, uh, a discipline that I felt was much easier to control my grades, and that was the economics, which was pretty, pretty much the grading was not, was not so much subjective. It was pretty much right or wrong. So you you graduated from uh, UW Madison. You went to Georgetown Law, and then did you start practicing law right away after that? I did. I actually wanted to go to Wisconsin for law school, but I got waitlisted. Georgetown took me right away, and um, I'll never forget this. I talked to a woman named Doyle, who's a famous Wisconsin name, and uh, it was a rather unpleasant uh, interview because uh, she she obviously didn't like my father because the first thing she said to me was I related to my father, and I said yes, and she said oh. Um, but anyway, I always wondered whether I got waitlisted based on that interview. But anyway, so I got waitlisted at Wisconsin's law school, ended up going to Georgetown. And right after I graduated from Georgetown, I wanted to um, wanted to get a second law degree, which was called an LLM, the E. Beard Prettyman Stewart Stiller Fellowship. And um, I was told that um, I, I didn't get it right after I graduated law school, but I should go do something and come back and apply. So I uh, got a federal clerkship out west and then from a million reasons and then took the bar in July and was supposed to start the clerkship sometime in November. But for a bunch of reasons, it didn't happen. The, the judge actually wanted to go to the Tenth Circuit and his senator, he told me, senator said, could you put someone on from my office to be your clerk? He didn't want to offend the senator. So he said, will you wait a year? So I said, sure. And in the meantime, I got the fellowship. So I did a two-year fellowship at Georgetown an LLM fellowship called the Ebear Prettyman Stewart Stiller Fellowship. Did that for two years, and then I hung out a shingle with uh, one of my uh, classmates in the program. There, there were five five of us fellows, and one of them, um, Steve Millick, and I held out, uh, hung out a shingle and practiced law for about ten years. You're listening to the Thank You 72 podcast. The Wisconsin Alumni Association is honoring amazing Badgers from Wisconsin 72 counties. For more amazing alumni stories, visit thankyou72.org. That's thankyou72.org. Now back to our interview with Outagamie County native and UW grad Greta Van Susteren. Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant Orenthal James Simpson not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Nicole Brown Simpson, a human being, as charged in count one of the information. 25 years ago, June 12, 1994, a tragic event happened that changed your life in a way I'm sure you had no idea it was about to. Nicole Brown Simpson, 
and Ron Goldman were murdered. And Nicole's ex-husband, the football legend O.J. Simpson, was arrested and tried for those murders. You became a CNN legal analyst for that trial. Tell me more about that experience. It actually backs up a little bit, which people don't realize, that um, I was when I was in D.C., during those 10 years I was practicing law, and as an adjunct professor at Georgetown, I was trying cases in my law firm. And sometime in about, uh, nine, about 1990, the mayor got arrested here, Marion Barry, for a cocaine-related charge. And the local media wanted someone to explain on the courthouse steps what cross-examination is, what opening statement is. And, of course, any lawyer can do that standing on his head. Uh, but they knew me because they had been following my very high-profile murder cases that I tried, the crews. These are people with the cameras outside the courthouse. So they asked me to do that. So I, I became known to the local community doing local TV, just explaining very you know fundamental things about trials. Not, and you couldn't put, bring cameras into the courtroom. And then about six months later, in November or December of that same year, William Kennedy Smith, who was who is a uh, Kennedy relative, um, had been arrested the April before for allegedly raping a woman down in Palm Beach, and CNN was going to go gavel gavel with the with the, with the trial because you you can you do have cameras in the courtroom in Florida, so they called me up. So that's when I I did two or three weeks then to cover the trial. So that's really when I got my start pretty much nationally, and then of course William with the course. Then uh, O.J. Simpson in June of 1994, wasn't it? 1994. So you were on the air pretty much every day with uh, Roger Cossack, right? Roger was in L.A. Roger is, is uh, practiced law in California. He later moved to D.C. to be part of the CNN show we later co-hosted. And I sat in a small room on Capitol Hill in the CNN Bureau watching it on a feed, the trial. And so I saw everything on a feed. People thought I was out in California. We weren't trying to hide the fact that I wasn't, but people just assumed that Roger was in California in the studio, not in the courtroom. And I was in the studio in DC and uh, we we did gavel gavel. We, you know, the, the network would go to commercial, but we would still have the live feed. So we watched the whole trial, both of us. Well, I know that Greta differs with me and Greta, I'm glad you're back there on the East coast, but I think this evidence is coming in. Well, I think, Roger, you're probably right. The judge will allow it in, but that's because I think it's difficult for a judge to look the prosecution in the eye and say, police officers, I know you work very hard, but in this particular case, you violated Mr. Simpson's rights. For that reason, I have to take the extreme step, which I'm mandated to do by the U.S. Constitution, and eliminate any evidence you seized after an unconstitutional entry. It's a very tough thing for a judge to do, and I hope that in this particular occasion, if the judge does see it that way, the judge has the courage to do the right thing. So how did you keep that, you know, just day after day, how did you keep the intensity of that? How did you just, I mean, I, I would think being in a... Tell you, TV is a million times easier than practicing law. Sitting there watching a trial and explaining what's going on is so much easier than the actual responsibility of being the trial lawyer. So to me, it was a lark. Plus, when you practice law, you have to worry things about like paying your staff, uh, paying for the fax machine, the lights. Uh, TV is is a million times easier. And think about this. You don't have people's lives in your hands. If you make a mistake, you embarrass yourself or you shame yourself. If you make a mistake while you're practicing law, you could hurt somebody's life. So to me, it was a lark. It was but, so much easier. But that lark turned into a career, really, for you, right? Obviously, because... Uh, yeah. I mean, yes. 
unexpectedly, because when I was growing up, the only lawyer on TV was Perry Mason. And that, was, and that of course, was fiction. So, yes, it, it accidentally turned into a career for me, not one I ever intended to have. I liked practicing law. I, my idea of a lawyer goes back to Appleton, Wisconsin, where you hang a shingle on a door and you wait for the people to come in. So you worked at CNN for, for several years after that. You had a show with, with Roger. And, and, then and you another had, show. And another show, right? And then right. in 2002, you negotiated a deal to go uh, uh, to Fox News. I believe Roger Ailes approached you, and, and um, you were at Fox for On the Record with Greta Van Susteren for 14 years. Sort of. Here's what happened, is that in January of 2001, AOL bought CNN. And if you've ever gone through a corporate reorganization, it is brutal to the people who work there. And they were firing my friends left, right, and center. And it was very unpleasant. It was most of our time, we used to spend 100% of our time talking about our shows and how to do a better job or what we're going to do. And it became people talking in the halls 75% of the time saying who's getting fired, um, how, you know, who's suffering. It was, it was just awful. So um, in September of that year, I had a window where I could talk to somebody else if I wanted to. And so I notified CNN that I was going to take advantage of the window of my contract that allowed me to. And I contacted Roger Ailes. And uh, I didn't even know who, who Fox News was to try to choose. When I was at CNN, nobody paid attention to Fox or MSNBC. They launched in uh, this, this, uh, July and October of 1996, and they were so inconsequential. We, did, we didn't get the ratings from them. We didn't care about them. But anyway, I thought, well, I'll go back to practicing law. Maybe I'll see what Roger Ailes at Fox, what they have. I had never even watched Fox at this point. So um, I called Roger and he said, come see me. And so I, I got on a plane and with my husband and we were on the runway at uh, National Reagan Airport on September 11th, about nine o'clock in the morning or 830 in the morning. And naturally, our plane never took off. They held us. And for obvious reasons, because first the plane hit one of the World Trade Center buildings and they hit another. My husband and I, then the plane was brought back to the terminal. We got off and we went to our car on the roof of National Airport. We always park on the roof so we don't lose our cars because you, otherwise you forget where you park when you're in and out of the parking lot so often and we're in and out of the airport so often. And, we, and the, the space had been uh, dead silent because they had stopped all the air traffic. And all of a sudden we heard a plane and it was like, and I looked up in the air, which is where you look for a plane. And didn't see anything. And then I heard the I heard an engine roar, and then I heard a horrible explosion. And all of a sudden, a black plume of smoke comes out of the Pentagon, which is only about five blocks away. And you can and it was right over the top of two buildings was the Pentagon. And I we knew it was the Pentagon, but we thought it had been a bomb. And this huge black cloud went straight up. We didn't know if we were about to get bombed or not, but it was the weirdest thing because it was a bright sunny day, but the bright cloud had this weird glitter in it, like the sparkling glitter. It was so bizarre. And what I've come to learn later is that, you know, the tiny pieces of the airplane skin were in this black cloud. and The sun was catching it, but it looked like a cloud of a black cloud with a bunch of sparkle and glitter in it. Um, so anyway, so I returned to CNN and it wasn't until sometime in December when things had somewhat quieted down in the news business. We'd gone through a lot of other things. We'd gone through 9-11, anthrax, um, and, uh, bombing in Afghanistan, and it was still all ongoing stories. Um, the anthrax, of course, being delivered to news organizations, is I went back up to see Roger Ailes, and and he seemed like like a nice enough guy. I mean, I didn't know him, and he he asked me to join Fox at a lesser amount. But I what I appreciated was the fact that it seemed that the place was not in total chaos, and 
CNN was in total chaos, which naturally so. This is not so unusual. If you've gone through any corporate reorganization, you know what I mean. And um, so I went, I went to Fox, and I had never seen Fox. I don't think I'd ever watched Fox when I decided to go there. But you were there for 14 years, and you had a really— 14 and a half. 14 and a half. And you had such a unique program because you did everything. You did financial news, politics. You interviewed conservatives and liberals, which, of course, you know, for Fox, they have obviously a reputation of being a more conservative outlet. But your program was pretty, pretty straightforward. I like to think it was very Midwestern, very Wisconsin. Um, you know, it's like I was in Washington. The headquarters is in New York. And I, nobody ever told me at Fox, not once, what to say or do. If you didn't like my show, you got to blame me 100%. But for 14 and a half years, I traveled the world. I went to North Korea three times, all over Africa, Sudan, uh, Middle East, went to Afghanistan, went to Iraq. I mean, I went every place, all over Western Europe, every place. And uh, I got to report the news. I spent a lot of time down in New Orleans during Katrina. It was, I mean, it really was an extraordinary experience. And, you know, the, let me just jump ahead, is that when in July of 2016, when, when Fox blew up, I, it was shocking, not just to, to me, but to everybody else, is that most of us, like, we had, we had no idea. And, you know, I, I read stories about how people at Fox were told what to say or do. I'm willing to accept that, but it just never happened to me. I, I, had, an, I had an hour, and I had a budget, and a great staff, and I had an exciting time. Um, but when Fox blew up, I had a peculiar situation is that I had 60 days in my contract to leave. That's all because under my contract is that if there's a CEO that left, I had 60 days to decide whether to stay or not. And I had that in my contract because I'd gone through that hell when AOL came in and bought and was, was the AOL bought CNN and was firing all my friends. And it was, it was terrible to watch my friends, some leaving in tears. Uh, And I didn't want to go through that again. So now I'm at Fox. I have 60 days to make a decision or not. I'd had 14 and a half wonderful years, but was it going to be, was it going to be hell with, you know, with the turnover? And, you know, I, I had nothing, I mean, Roger Ailes, I had lunch with Roger Ailes once a year. So my involvement with 14 and a half years was minimal. He never bothered me, never bothered my show. Um, anyway, I elected to leave. So um, I, on the, like three days before the 60 days expired, I gave notice and, and I left. And, so you never really had. By the any... way, by Go the ahead. way, I did. I, I I want under the sixty days. I was also obliged to stay another sixty days, which I expected to do, which I expected would enable me to say goodbye to the viewers. Fox got mad at me and wouldn't let me say goodbye to the viewers and took me off the air immediately. So I never got to say goodbye to the viewers, which I always felt bad about. Yeah, because you had such a loyal following that that is sad that you were not able to do that. But anyway, I had a great time there. But, you know, my experience is just so much different than what what I hear others. Yes. So, and as some of our listeners may understand, Roger Ailes had a lot of allegations thrown at him and by a lot of Fox employees. And so the wheels really And they were electrifying. I mean, they were like, I'm not I remember being at the uh, Republican convention because we cover the conventions. First, we go to the Republican one and then the Democrat. And much of this was unfolding while we were at the Republican convention, that 60-day period. We would stand around in a group, of, you know, because we were, in, we were the media was in one collected area. You'd have the Fox area, the CN area, New York Times area. But we'd sit there in the Fox area, and we'd all stand around the computer terminal reading these stories about Fox. And it's like it was shocking to all of us, or at least to many of us. You left Fox 
And right. and now you're on to some really great adventures, right? So you're a contributor for the Voice of America. Uh, you have a program called Plugged In with Greta Van Susteren. Tell tell me a little bit about that. What what that's been like for you? Well, you know, f- first you know, first I did six months at MSNBC, and uh, I will say this is that my ratings were going up. No one said I lied. No one said I sexually harassed. Nobody said I got a fax wrong. Everybody said I did good my a good job, but they fired me in less than six months. Um, I'll leave it at that. Um, but is so when I left MSNBC or got fired from MSNBC, I needed to figure out what to do. And I got a phone call immediately from someone who was part of the Annenberg School at USC, wanted me to be a fellow out there. And it was it, and it was only like a day later or something. And I said I didn't know, but I'll I'll meet you. And we met. He happened. We happened to be in the same town, so we met. And he told me about Voice of America, which I hadn't paid much attention to um, over my life. I knew about it, but I've been very much involved in domestic news gathering. And so um, I, he said, you'd like the person who's the director. And, I, and why don't you go have lunch with her? You've you got plenty of time. And, you know, you certainly have a lot of plenty of time when, you, when you're fired. you got a lot of time. And so I went over and had lunch with her. And I found Amanda Bennett fascinating. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist. She's the director of the VOA. She'd lived in China for a number of years. And we got to talking and I offered to, uh, if they would like, to volunteer because I, I didn't want to, I wasn't looking for a job at that point. I didn't want to work for the government. Um, and I, you know, it was my life. You know, when you get fired, your life gets turned upside down. You aren't sure what you want to do. So I volunteered to do a weekly show uh, called Plugged In, which, I, which, I, which I've been doing for over, well over a year. And, it's, uh, and it broadcasts all around the world. It's translated into Farsi and broadcast into Iran. It's, it's translated into Korean, into Russian, it's all over Africa. But under the VOA charter, uh, dating back, VOA started back in, the, I think, the 40s as a way to get behind the Iron Curtain and was radio and shortwave. And over the years, it expanded. But in about 1997 or something, when Congress was taking a look at it and when it was getting into TV, uh, it, as part of a charter, it said that um, it couldn't broadcast inside the United States. And the United States government administration, whether Republican or Democrat, couldn't tell VOA what to say or do, giving it complete independence because it's paid for by the taxpayers. And there's always, you know, you, know, you don't want state-sponsored news. Now, of course, on the flip side, commercial news has got its problems as well because they're interested in the bottom line sometimes, which is, you know, which poisons some news organizations. But anyway, so um, so my show is once a week broadcast outside the United States, but it is brought in. To, uh, it brought into VOA website by streaming. It, so you, you can watch the, the whole show on www.voanews.com. And it is translated, I guess, into something like, I don't know, 45 languages. It's, I mean, it's broadcast all over the world, all over the globe. Uh, so it's, it's a fascinating experience for me. And we, um, I've, I've been to, um, I went to Singapore and interviewed uh, President Trump on North Korea. That During the first summit, I went to Argentina for the G20 and interviewed uh, President Trump. But probably the thing that I really enjoy about Voice America, um, besides the fact that the journalists are from all over the world, so I, you know, I meet the most fascinating people you can imagine. I meet people who, have, who used to work in Russia, but uh, their spouse got murdered, so now they live here in the United States. I mean, just these incredible stories, these journalists, they're very you know, deep experiences. Um, but I did a documentary with Voice of America on the Rohingya. And that is the Muslim group that had the Myanmar military has pushed them out of 
uh, Myanmar and into Bangladesh, and they've done it with ethnic cleansing and genocide, and they have pushed them into, Bang- into uh, Bangladesh. And there are so many stories about the Myanmar military ripping children out of mothers' arms and throwing them in fires in front of them as they were doing this. And, of course, the world said after the Holocaust um, is that never again. Well, it's happening again during our lifetime, and the world is largely ignoring it. I've been there now twice, and I did a documentary which is called Displaced by VOA, which is on YouTube, and it uh, and what we did is we put the spotlight on this crisis, and you know, and thank you to um, to the Holocaust Museum here who has condemned this as genocide. Thank you to the United Nations who has condemned this as genocide. To the House of Representatives, to the Senate that's imposed sanctions. I mean, there are a lot of people, but it's very slow to trying to fix a crisis that's happening in our lifetime as we talk. So, as far as VOA, um, what I'm extremely proud about is be part of this organization that is putting a spotlight on this genocide. And I dare say, um, you know, I, I regret that with the exception of someone like Nick, Nick Kristoff at the New York Times, there's not much of a spotlight put on this genocide. Yeah, that's, that's awful. Yes. Congratulations to you, by the way. Um, you have a new gig on top of uh, your Voice of America um, duties, which is the new chief national uh, political analyst for Gray Television. They own stations all around the country, including here in Wisconsin and in Madison, Eau Claire, Green Bay, and Wausau. Um, tell us about what that role is going to be like. Well, you have to have to appreciate the fact that one of us WBAY in Green Bay, which you know that's my, the station I grew up on. So that's really fun. Um, it is. It's actually, if you look a little deeper into the um, press release, and sort of buried in the press releases, besides being their national political uh, chief national political analyst, is I'm going to have two syndicated shows with them to be announced, and that's sort of a big secret. And uh, that'll be announced in April, uh, which is really sort of the fun thing because. Gray TV owns 145 stations having uh, merged with Raycom across the United States. They have them not just in Wisconsin, but they have them in Alaska, Hawaii, South Carolina, Florida, New England, all over the Midwest. But here's the exciting thing. Um, think about this. is that um, They have two stations in Iowa, I think three or four in Wisconsin, both huge political states for 2020. Very important. And when Hillary Clinton ran for New York st- senator in 2000, one of the hardest things for us at CNN and Fox and MSNBC was to get her as a guest. And the reason why is that when you run for office, you want to reach out to the voters and the cables, while they have significant audiences, they're pretty much down the eastern seaboard. Uh, you're, not, you're not going to find a lot of Iowa or Wisconsin voters necessarily with cable. And a lot of people have cut the cord, too. But what these candidates want to do is they want to talk to the local media because that's where the voters are and because everybody gets local broadcast media because it's free. So the exciting thing for me is that with Grace, I'm going to be able to interview all these 2020 candidates, and I think they're going to want to come to me more now that I'm at Gray because they're going to reach the voters of Wisconsin. They're going to reach the voters of Iowa. And um, so this is, you know, so this is perfect for me or the voters in South Carolina. And uh, we're, we're just sort of building this role. And um, I got to tell you, uh, I, the Gray people, first of all, um, the COO, Bob, uh, Bob Smith is from Madison, and every time I see him, we get to talk Packers, Badgers. Uh, this is just really fun for me. That's awesome. Yeah, and that's you're you're spot on with that assessment. I think you're right. That will be a great place to be for for um, uh, candidates to plus, reach out from, plus, to, to yeah, those local plus, affiliates. Plus, one other thing is that look, I had wonderful years at cable. I had a lot of interesting times. I do think something has changed in cable. 
And I don't know if it's me getting older or if cable has somewhat gotten, you know, so partisan. Um, and, all, and I don't mind, you know, good, robust debate from either side, but it's got a tinge of nasty to it. And, you know, at least I think, not everybody, but there are some who, are, who have loud voices that could somehow poison it for the others. But um, I just think that cable and, and with the cost of cable and everyone cutting, cutting the cord and going online is that I just think the future is, is obviously more online and with uh, broadcast, which is free. So this is, this is an exciting adventure. And Gray, I, I'm blown away at how complicated broadcast is compared to cable. Cable, we have one place to go and it broadcasts at the same time every place around the country. When you have broadcast, like think of Gray, they have 145 stations and they've got different call numbers different sizes, different anchors. It is, I mean, it's so complex to me and it's a whole different business in so many ways that it's an exciting adventure for me. What do you think the future is for television news? I think the American voters are getting pretty fed up with TV news. And I'm a little bit, you know, worried that, you know, they're just going to turn us off. And so we have to earn a lot of the trust and respect and credibility. Best way to do that is by getting it right. When the when the president insults the media, I think it's better to rise above it and do a better job and not take the bait and get in a fight with him. You know, this is this is a very contentious time. One final question for you, Greta. What what does Wisconsin mean to you? Well, probably the best example is people say to me, I'm traveling someplace. Where are you from? I go, Wisconsin. And I've been living here in Washington for over 40 years. You know, I mean, it's like, it, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. That's, you know, just, just the way I look at it. And um, I have the obligatory cheese head, actually, I have two. Um, I, you know, I've got to share the Packers. I watch the Badgers. I love it when the Badgers beat the Terrapins because my husband went to the University of Maryland as a Terrapin. Um, I have this idea in my head because I grew up among the most decent people in Appleton and, and Madison is that it's, you know, it's a very decent place. And I really like that. Um, I think the university you know, when I went to when I went to Wisconsin, the I think my tuition for the semester, just tuition, not room board or something like, is less than three hundred dollars a semester, and that's because all the taxpayers in the state of Wisconsin were so proud of the university, and the university was so proud to keep the costs down, and when they wanted you know every kid in Wisconsin to have a chance to go to college, and you know that's just sort of it spoke so highly. I realize that now it's more expensive, times have changed, but. Uh, I've always been proud of the University of Wisconsin. You know, I'm a I'm a Badger, and I had I actually spent more years at Georgetown. I'd spent three years in, as a JD student and two years as an LM. That's five, and I spent four at Wisconsin. But I, I consider myself a Badger and not a Hoya. I hope there are no Georgetown people listening to this. Um, but uh, I I love Madison. I love the university, and I'm proud of it. I do have I do have a brother-in-law though who sinfully went to Michigan. And one of my sister's children sinfully went to Michigan. But my brother and I, my sister uh, spent some time at Wisconsin. My brother and I graduated from there. And um, I'm just proud of the University of Wisconsin. I'm, I'm proud to say I'm a Badger, which is, you know, all these years later, that seems like an odd thing to say, but I'm proud of it. No, it's not odd at all. We're proud of you too, Greta. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Thank You 72 podcast. For more interviews with amazing UW alumni, visit thankyou72.org. That's thankyou72.org.